Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. My name is Andrew. Um, I have the honor of being up here tonight to share with the word from you, with you guys this evening. Um, tonight we're going to be continuing our series in Mark, our series throughout the entire year. As we journey through Mark will be the relentless life of Jesus Christ. And tonight before we get into our passage in Mark chapter 3 verses 7 through 35, I want us to see that the entirety of what we have been preaching through thus far in the first two chapters and into the third has been preparing us for what we will see tonight. And tonight's message is entitled, Jesus, the Mighty One of Jacob. So before we get into Mark 3, open with me first to Mark chapter 1 and follow along with me as I read off a few verses starting in chapter, excuse me, verse 7 in chapter 1. And he, and remember this is John the Baptist testifying about Jesus, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John testifies that Jesus is mighty, and that while his own mission has been to baptize with water to bring people to repentance, the mission of Jesus will be to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So let's keep reading in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus is baptized and by John to signify the beginning of his mission. And the Spirit descends upon him visibly, confirming that this is God's chosen warrior, But what is the war he is entering into and what is the enemy of this war? In verses 12 and 13, it shows us the Spirit wastes no time and immediately drives Jesus into the wilderness to contend with the enemy in a cosmic battle, Satan. He does not succumb for 40 days to the temptations of Satan, demonstrating for the first time in Mark that the Spirit of the Lord is greater than he that is in the world, which is Satan. Thus far in Mark, he has been demonstrating his might, his authority as a son of God by teaching with far greater power than the leaders and far greater authority of man-made religion, healing people miraculously and casting out demons. So let's keep this in our minds tonight as we go to Mark chapter 3. This will influence how we see um, the climax of tonight's message in chapter 3. So let me pray for us, please. Father, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, that you delight in steadfast love, that you care for us, that you are slow to anger, that you sent your Son, O God, that we might know you and have life with you, God, that you might bring us, God, from the kingdom of darkness, God, which belongs to Satan, and transfer us to the kingdom of your Son, Jesus, God, which is all by your grace. You have loved us so, so well, God, and we are immensely grateful for that tonight. Lord, humble me tonight. Um, keep my eyes fixed on you. May my heart exalt in you, God. 
May I worship you as I, as I move through your word, and may your word stir each of us tonight, God, to see who Jesus is with unveiled eyes. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let me start with us in verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So we have a movement in geography here. Jesus moves now down to the Sea of Galilee and he continues to, this is a summative text, it tells us exactly what Jesus has been doing. He has been teaching, he has been casting out demons, the demons have been recognizing him and declaring his authority, and he has been healing people. And if we, I want us to notice here, one, the remarkable compassion and kindness of Jesus. He is attracting such large crowds from throughout all of Israel and the Roman Empire that he sends for a boat because he could literally be crushed to death by the amount of sick people who are desperately seeking to touch him and be healed. Yet rather than rebuking them, which he could have easily done, literally demons obey him, he welcomes them and he makes provisions and prepares so that these people can still come to him. This is a horde of untouchable people that are literally pressing in on him, presenting a real threat to his own life, and he receives them. Jesus' compassion is unparalleled. Second, look at verse 11 again. As before in Mark, even demons are falling in fear before Jesus, acknowledging his authority and that he is a son of God. And we ought to let this be a witness. One, that your your correct theology, that our correct theology, isn't the key to the kingdom. To whom you pledge your allegiance is the key to the kingdom. In spite of their correct theology concerning Jesus, they were in alliance with Satan and sought to oppose Jesus' mission rather than join him in it. There are probably some in this room right now who acknowledge the biblical facts about Jesus, but whose lives betray that they have no allegiance to him. What your highest priorities are, what our highest priorities are, how we spend our time, why we spend our time in that way, what, you, what we spend our money on, why we can't, what the things we can't stop thinking about, these things reveal our idols and whose mission we are on. And it is very possible for us, as it was with the demons and is with the demons, to acknowledge the deity of Jesus and still reject his mission by always being on our own missions or the missions of another kingdom. Christians, if right now you are thinking about how you have been failing to be on mission for Christ lately, do not be discouraged or let the enemy tell you that Jesus doesn't want you anymore. We are not saved by good deeds and we will not lose our salvation for lack of good deeds. We are saved by God's grace, and we continue to be on mission however many times we fail by God's grace. Repent, get accountability tonight, and cling to Jesus and move forward on mission with Christ. Let's keep reading. Verses 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
So here we see that Jesus invites 12 specific disciples who have been with him. Some of these we saw earlier in Mark where Jesus specifically called them to follow him. He appoints them now as apostles and asks and calls them to join him in his mission to preach to the kingdom of God, and he gives them authority to cast out demons. So we ought to notice here, one, the purpose, and two, the authority of Jesus' calling. The calling to be apostles, which literally means one who is sent, that they... Um, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This means at least two things for us in this room. To be a Christian is not just to subscribe to a set of beliefs and ideals. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus and to join him on his mission. He gave these specific 12 apostles the authority to cast out demons that they too might demonstrate the nearness of the kingdom of God with authority. But to all of us whom he calls to himself, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. And the same is true for us today. Jesus, after having resurrected from the grave, just prior to ascending to heaven, he says the same thing to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, cons- to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Even though the mission to which we have been called is far too great for us, we will not fear and we will not shrink back because the spirit of him who called us dwells in us, that Jesus has authority, and he promises that he will be with us. Second, Jesus alone has true authority, and he demonstrates it here by giving it to those whom he desires. There is no one among us or in our nation or our world who has the true authority of Jesus Christ to give and to take from whomever he pleases. This makes Jesus a terror to those who would reject him and the greatest comfort to those who would, by faith, receive him as their king. We know by faith that there is an unseen cosmic war that we already talked about taking place at this very moment between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of darkness, and we trust in the might of Jesus over the might of Satan. Jesus will destroy the kingdom of darkness and damn it to hell, along with all who, along with Satan, rejected him and his authority. But to all who do receive him, John 1 says, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. The authority of Jesus is a judgment to his enemies, but it is a shield to God's children. Verses 20 through 21, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So now the blood family of Jesus sets out directly to oppose his mission. We know that when we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, one, that there will be people who you would think, of all people, ought to understand the mission to which we have been called and ought to support us, but nevertheless will set out to directly oppose us under the guise of concern. Sometimes this opposition will last for a lifetime. Other times, as with Jesus' mother, they are merely doing so out of temporary ignorance. Mary literally conceived of Jesus supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit, and even she is understanding Jesus' mission and therefore seeks to oppose him. Any Christian in here who has ever talked to their parents or others close to them about doing anything risky or dangerous things for Jesus knows that sometimes no, one's, um, no one sets out to oppose us while we are on mission quite like family does. They will say that they are concerned for us or that it just isn't smart, but hear me, there is nowhere safer and more reasonable than the place that God has brought us, and there is nothing more dangerous or stupider than disobedience to God. 
We can just ask Jonah about that one. Therefore, we should know and we should decide now to place our hope in nobody save for Jesus, our King, who alone will never fail us. As for human beings, we ought to have grace on them and pray for them, knowing that we too, at times, have likely opposed the mission of God and other people. And we ought to also take heart, knowing that Jesus has sympathy for us and empathy because he himself was rejected by his own family, and he is therefore able to comfort us and sanctify us through it. And moreover, he has made specific provision to comfort us for rejection from our family and opposition that the passage gets to later. But first, let's move to verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, which means Satan, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So now the Jewish authorities, the scribes, set out to oppose Jesus, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, as we will say, but as we will see, by declaring that Jesus has an unclean spirit. Now, not only has Jesus' blood family set out to oppose him, but now his religious family. And we, we expect this. We've read the, the Gospels. We've seen earlier in Mark, even if we haven't read the Gospels, that this is consistently the job that the scribes have given themselves to oppose the mission of Jesus. But we ought to nonetheless take note that we too should expect to encounter opposition from those who are supposed to be in a religious family, but who ultimately reject Jesus and his authority and fail to hear and do the word of God. Rather, they use man-made religion, like we talked about last week, as a means of creating their own authority. There are a few ways we can identify these sorts of religious people in our own time, and we should also use these questions to evaluate ourselves. So the first question I'll ask is, do you or your favorite Bible teachers go out of your way to spend a significant amount of your energy and ministry just being contentious? The scribes traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is an extremely far distance, even if you have a car, which they clearly did not have cars, just to try and take down Jesus and win his followers for themselves. Jesus never traveled simply for the sake of stealing a crowd for himself. Mark doesn't say, and Jesus, having heard of the liberals in Tyre, got on a donkey and went and destroyed them with facts. Or, and Jesus, having heard of the conservatives in Sidon, got on a donkey and went and berated them for their lack of moral decency. If the mission you are on or that we are on affords us the time to be consistently on defense as though we are some sort of think tank and that Christianity is about opposing all the right things, then we may not be on Jesus' mission and we may be fighting just to maintain our own authority. I once read a quote from someone which said, some of you think, some of us think that we are, being, that we are contending for the faith when we are actually just being contentious in the faith. Second question, do you or your favorite Bible teachers spend more time warning against and condemning the works of the flesh than you do commending and encouraging the fruit of the Spirit, which comes by faith? Jesus prioritized the forgiveness of sins, which, by the way, the religious authorities called him a blasphemer for granting forgiveness earlier in Mark, while the religious authorities prioritized outward works of the flesh, while inside they were dead. Such works afforded them the power, as it says in Matthew 23, 13, to shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces by loading their backs with far too heavy a load. The consequence was that neither they entered the kingdom of God themselves nor allowed those who would enter to go in. But on the contrary, Jesus, in comparison, invited people in Matthew eleven twenty eight, saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we ought to take caution that neither us nor the Bible teachers that we are letting influence us 
that we don't model our ministries after the scribes instead of, instead of after the ministry of Jesus. Just as with, um, let's move to verse, um, back to verse 22, excuse me. Just as with the 12 disciples, Jesus called the scribes to him, as it says in the verse, only rather than inviting them to join him in his mission, he calls them to refute them for their opposition to his mission and their rejection of his authority. This actually marks the beginning of Jesus' parables in Mark. And while most of the time Jesus calls people to himself when he speaks in parables, he does so to teach his disciples. This is among a few times when he does so as a judgment to those who oppose and reject him. Whereas the scribes have formally accused Jesus of blasphemy for forgiving sins, he now calls them to himself to call them blasphemers for denying the power by which he forgives sins. There are two accusations from the scribes. One, that he is possessed by Satan. And two, he he commands demons in the power of Satan. He refutes them both in two parables in the saying. Let's read the first parable in 23 to 26. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He asks a rhetorical question. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? In in reality, Jesus in this first parable just completely destroys their entire accusations and proves it to be completely illogical, much less close to being true. Um, Because, of course, Satan cannot cast out Satan. If what they said were true and Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan, then there would be disunity in Satan's kingdom and it would surely meet its end via civil war. Obviously, because demonic powers were and still are clearly seen, and that they still prowl about seeking to destroy human life, it cannot be true that there is civil war, as the scribes proposed. Thus, their claims against Jesus made no sense. That's the end of that parable. He just completely roasts them and then moves on. Verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So rather than destruction coming from the, out, from the inside via internal warfare, Jesus here predicts in this parable that the kingdom of Satan will actually fall via external attack because one even stronger than the strong man, Satan, will bind Satan and plunder his goods and his house. And remember, when I first got up here, we read at the beginning of Mark, the prophecy of Isaiah, we read about the baptism of Jesus and the anointing of the Spirit. And from that very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was indwelled, with the Spirit, and, and Satan, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus together go and immediately enter into a cosmic struggle in the wilderness. So we ought to draw close here. For the relentless life of Jesus Christ in Mark draws nearer and nearer each day towards the cross. Leading to the cross, Jesus is the ultimate picture of powerlessness. He is bound. He is plundered of all of his possessions and stripped naked. He had his life ended upon the cross. And it looked an awful lot to his disciples like the strong man Satan had won. But herein lies the beauty of the gospel. By this ultimate rejection and his surrender of power, Jesus actually took the power of the strong man, which is the power to accuse us and hold us captive in our own sin and shame. Jesus, having perfectly accomplished his Father's will and lived up to the righteous requirements of God, paid the penalty of our sin on the cross, and in his resurrection, he actually plundered Satan by becoming preeminent, the first one to rise from the dead among many sons and daughters, that Jesus might storm the house of the strong man and lead us out with him as the plunder. 
Well, Satan in this present time is an incredibly dangerous and powerful force, and he's an enemy to God and to those who are called God's children. His fate was nailed. He will be bound and he will be rendered helpless by the mightier man, Jesus, and he will sit by in ropes as Jesus leads a host of captives free from his household. The ongoing effect of Jesus' ministry on earth and his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and now the mission of the Spirit-empowered church in this present age is the cosmic binding and embarrassment of Satan, the strong man. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 49, 24-26. And if you're not familiar with Old Testament scripture, a lot of the times it's just God laughing at the enemies who would come against him and embarrassing them. It says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty of the captives, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is our Jesus, the Mighty One of Jacob, who will and is stronger than Satan, and he will bind him and lead us out with him as he is already doing. Verses 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclear, unclean spirit. After having refuted the second claim, he now addresses the first claim that, that he is possessed by Satan. Many of us in here, including Christians, will read or hear this saying about this unforgivable sin, and it is going to terrify us. I know that there are probably some in here who are terrified after having read that. We're Christians, but we see this, and it, it brings us to fear. And I know that there are some Christians in here that immediately became terrified that somehow you may be guilty of this unforgivable sin without ever, ever having even noticed it. Look with me, though, at verse 30. It says, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And so Mark actually identifies for us in this verse exactly what, quote, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. It is denying the power by which Jesus wars against Satan and forgives sin, and which is the Holy Spirit, and, and is rejecting Jesus' mission. And so to put that even simpler for us, our position as being either forgiven or unforgiven is entirely dependent upon our position relative to the kingdom of God. Those in the kingdom of God have forgiveness. Those who are not in the kingdom of God do not have forgiveness. So we ought not to be asking ourselves, am I guilty of the unforgivable sin? Here's what we ought to ask ourselves. Having heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, have you repented of your sins and believed in the resurrected Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is king and has the authority to forgive sins and that he gives his spirit to those who turn to him? I, don't even ask yourself specifically if you believe that you are saved because it is easy to let lingering guilt trick us into believing that we are unforgivable. So focus not on what you've done, but focus on this. Do you believe that Jesus is king and has the authority to forgive sin and gives the Holy Spirit to those who turn to him? And so if you have repented of your sins and if you do believe and join the mission of Christ, hear me. Because of what we know in Scripture to be true, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and you are therefore a member of the kingdom of God, and you are a recipient of endless forgiveness that you cannot exhaust because of the love of Christ towards you. Look at Romans 8. It says, 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor Satan, nor height nor depth, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even you and your sin can separate you from Christ's love. So listen, child, you are forgiven. Rest. Do not let the devil weaponize this verse in Mark 3, which is actually in here to condemn those in his kingdom. Don't let him use that to condemn you. Know that because of Scripture, you are set free because of your repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not repented and believed in the gospel, having heard it then, does this make you unforgivable? No. We all at one point were dead in the trespasses and sins of which we once walked, following in the footsteps of Satan himself. This is the default position of man due to sin. If you have not repented and believed in the gospel, there still remains hope for you. Repent and believe tonight in the gospel and receive salvation, the forgiveness of your sins. But I will issue this warning. If, having heard the gospel of Jesus, as each of us in this room have, especially after tonight, you do not repent and believe you are currently separated from Christ and you are rejecting him. Do not concern yourself with the question, are you guilty of the unforgivable sin? Simply hear and believe while the promise still stands to receive the Holy Spirit. Join Christ in the mission to which he has called us. The only soul which is truly without hope is the soul which refuses to repent and believe in the gospel. Now let's return back to Jesus's mother and brothers. And so earlier it says that they sought, they went out to oppose him for they were saying he, that he was crazy. He was out of his mind for what he was doing. And now they arrive. Look at verses um, 31. It says, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus here establishes the basis for belonging to the kingdom of God and to the family of God, and it is doing the will of God. Membership in the family of Christ is the provision that he has given us and given for us to comfort us and to sanctify us as we endure rejection from others, including our natural family sometimes. So we ought not to miss this. The reason Jesus came, simply put, was to do the will of the Father, and he was successful. Whereas we as human beings rejected and despised God, making idols for ourselves to worship instead of God, he loved us still. It was his gracious will then to orchestrate a grand mission by which he would send his son to earth to bear his own wrath and to wage war with Satan, whom we allied ourselves with in our rejection of God. Jesus was innocent. Yet for our sake, he was condemned to die. He was nailed to the cross where he bore the penalty of our sins and our rebellion, and he descended into the grave. Three days later, God rose him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, creating a miraculous, beautiful means by which anyone 
who should repent of their sins and believe in Jesus and his resurrection could have their sins paid for and be given new life in the Spirit, becoming as Christ in his resurrection. And it is by this same Spirit given to the believer we are made children, not just forgiven people who have no record against us, but we are made children and are given the same power, the Holy Spirit, by which Jesus was obedient to the will of God. Why? That no one may boast as though we had earned our salvation. For it is all the gracious gift of God the Father who loved us. Jesus established a family that was new and characterized by the Spirit who drives and empowers the one he indwells to join Jesus on mission. He, we who repent and believe then are not only forgiven, but we are made to be family with Christ as children. So as the band comes back up, I want all of us to consider with me the cost of discipleship. Following Jesus down the way of the cross is costly. His blood family opposed him. His religious family opposed him. The kingdom of darkness, which possesses a semblance of power even in this day, opposed him. He was rejected, hated, betrayed, beaten, and delivered up to death. Following him and joining in his mission will mean that we suffer like he did. Yet this too is certain, that we will be united with him in the life he now lives. For us who follow Jesus, we have this assurance. Come what may, I belong to Christ and to the new family that he has established in, his, in himself, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Please pray with me. Father, you are majestic and grand. You are loving, God. You are far above the heavens, God. Um, we did nothing that we should deserve your love. In fact, we, we deserved everything to the contrary. And, and yet, God, just to show off for us how much you love us, how good you are, how merciful and kind and patient you are, you decided to create the most beautiful, grand, unbelievable plan in the entire world. And moreover, all that we need to do to not only be forgiven, but to be your, your son, your daughter, God, is just to, to say that we believe and we repent of our sin. So God, please, we know that this is a work of your spirit to even do this. So please, God, unveil our eyes. Let us see, God, your grace and your glory. Help us, oh God, to repent of our sins and to believe in, in you, God, our Savior. Um, to you alone be glory, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.